once again to Father Spitzer's universe at that extremely busy intersection where faith and reason meet, especially during the Advent Christmas season. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, the mothership where it all began back in 1981 and still going strong thanks to your support of EWTN and Mother's Mission. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. It helps to drive the program. It's a third of the, every program are your questions. Check out all the Father Spitzer's websites, themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org. Each different, each unique. Father Spitzer's Universe, our program, is always available naturally on our EWTN YouTube channel and on our EWTN On Demand page. And while you're checking out our wonderful on-demand page, which keeps expanding every day, you can go there and find out a wonderful new program we've produced called Alive in Christ. This inspirational docudrama tells the great struggle of the early Christians against the persecution of the Romans. You can see it now free and on-demand, but most specifically, it's really about Eucharistic martyrs, and it's a great way to see to the extent people would give up their lives in defense of the real presence of the Eucharist. Boy, we could use that now. Uh, today, we've got a great topic, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church from Father's wonderful book. If you haven't picked it up for Christmas, you should. He's got two others you can fill in if you already got that one. That would be exciting. And through our EWTN Religious Catalog, he's got a, the latest one having to do with the Bible. The Book of the Month from EWTN Publishing from Mother Angelica herself. Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis called from a wonderful series of teachings she did years ago. And I tell you, I did an interview with Father Joseph on this particular book, and we always marvel at how prescient Mother was and how prophetic she was about the things she said back then and how important they are, especially today. Speaking of someone who always has something important to say, we turn to our great friend Father Spitzer, who it's always a pleasure to be with. Nice to be with you again, Father. If you'll lead us in prayer, that would be great. Great to you bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of our faith, Lord, and uh, this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now to inspire, guide, protect us, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Always a pleasure to be with you again, Father, uh, as we're rolling here, obviously, in Advent now, uh, looking towards the Christmas season. But let's not rush through Advent, of course. A couple of stories. I wanted to get your reaction. People are always interested in your take on these things. Um, story came out, uh, this one by our own Catholic news agency, reporting deaths by suicide grew to the highest number ever recorded in the U.S. history reaching nearly 50,000 in 2022, so this is going back a year. Uh, data released by the CDC. Uh, and what's interesting is we're now dealing with the fact that it's 14.3 deaths per 100,000, exceeds the previous 14.1, which had been the highest rate since 1941. And we all know what was going on in 1941. Uh, you know, yep. we were in the beginning of World War II and, and the cusp of the U.S. entry into World War II. Uh, and they say the most heavily impacted age group was adults above 35. The suicide rate for white females was among the largest increase of any group with a rate of increase from 7.1 to 
And four times as many males, though, as females died by suicide. Actually, uh, almost 40,000 to 10,000. But they say sometimes it could be underreported because uh, females tend to use uh, drug overdoses uh, as, as a methodology mm -hmm. and sometimes get classified not as a suicide but as, you know, just a drug overdose mm -hmm. that was done by mistake. Uh, and they note, as you've mentioned many times, the suicide rates have been steadily increasing over the last 50 years. Yeah, that's right. And uh, um, it's not just the last 50 years. Uh, the last uh, 20 years in particular have been actually accelerated uh, increases in suicides uh, from the previous uh, decades. <clears throat> the reason, of course, as I've mentioned many, many times, is not so much, um, I mean, COVID is certainly involved mm -hmm. in the last uh, four or five years uh, uh, leading up to the suicides. But prior uh, to that, there was a steady increase um, that was attributable to, um, I think, Instagram and Facebook that mm -hmm. have really, especially with women, young women, have increased those suicide rates dramatically. And um, then in terms of the male population, both suicides and homicides. So um, you're absolutely correct. Um, mm -hmm. Our culture is definitely, it's, it's a cultural manifestation. People try to blame it on COVID. COVID certainly has um, participated, you know, mm -hmm. the isolation of COVID is, has participated in those statistics um, just for the last four years. But the steady accelerating uh, rate of suicide increase uh, has certainly been going on for a, at least 12 years, the accelerating rate mm -hmm. uh, prior to COVID. So um, now, right. of course, no surprise that it's the highest suicide right. rates ever. It will continue right. to go up unless we begin to change our attitudes. Um, that we have to get off of what I call level two happiness, ego comparative happiness, which has now hit its um, stride. I mean, I, I mean, it's accelerating so fast. Instagram, uh, social media has certainly accelerated that. And of course, the decrease in religion, religious participation and belief in God, uh, the two, uh, you know, the increase in level two, the decrease in level four, uh, level four is faith uh, identity. Level um, two is ego comparative identity. So when you see an ego, uh, an increase in ego comparative identity and a decrease in religious identity, going with the decrease in religious identity is also a decrease in moral identity, moral standards, and moral objectivity. So when you've got those two things combined, all of the markers for depression, anxiety, suicide, suicidal uh, contemplation, substance abuse, and familial tensions, they're all in place. Mm -hmm. Those two cultural factors alone, we really do have to bring God back into the picture, right. make God meaningful for people, uh, and that sense right. of real moral propriety that comes with God, that has got to be increased. And we, through that, have to decrease this ego comparative, right. you know, right. you know, skyrocketing uh, effect that's ha right. happening in the culture today. Well, it seems in some ways, uh, from an image perspective, it strikes me that we're all under so much pressure in the world today. Uh, you know, we're inundated with so much information and so much pressure. And if you don't have at least something inside, your faith inside you, to strengthen you, you, you just implode. There's, there's, there's nothing inside yeah. to keep you from uh, withstanding that pressure. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, it's the pressure from uh, outside, but there are also internal pressures too. We need meaning in life. Mm -hmm. We need significant purpose and dignity and mooring and anchoring. And our notion of love has got to be better than superficial. Mm -hmm. We need some form of also emotional intimacy in our lives. We need some form of genuine care and concern from others. Superficial love, sexual gratification, those things alone will not satisfy us. And then on top of it, we're absolutizers, we're ultimatizers, uh, we're, we're transcendent beings by our very nature. We've talked about the soul over and over again, and our soul needs to be fed. And if we don't have an ultimate identity, an ultimate meaning and purpose in life, an ultimate dignity for ourselves, an ultimate form of fulfillment, and an ultimate sense of hope for the future, like into eternity, we are so radically incomplete that we are empty and alienated and lonely within ourselves. And of course, when you compound that with the superficialization of love uh, in our culture and the reduction of love to, to mere feelings and, and sexual gratification, oh my gosh, I mean, it's, it's a recipe uh, for disaster. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, and I shouldn't be a doomsday guy here because I'm, I'm more optimistic than that. I think God will help us. But boy, I don't want to get to the old Roman rates, you know, mm -hmm. where you're starting to get a two, three percent, uh, you know, suicide rate on an ongoing basis. That's not good. Right. So uh, for any culture, uh, as the Romans discovered. Right. Uh, you like studies, so here's another study. The Institute for Family Studies comes out with parenting is the key to adolescent mental health. Gee, not a surprise for, for Catholics and Christians. Highlights yeah. of the study. I yeah. wanted to, The most important factor in the mental health of adolescents is the quality of the relationship with their parents. Okay. Number two, conservative yep. and very conservative parents are the most likely to adopt the parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health. And finally, parents who think highly yes. of marriage exhibit better parenting practices and have a higher quality relationship with their teens. Your thoughts? Yep, that's very true. Uh, well, I think all of those things are true and they're actually traceable to other studies uh, that are very significant. Let's just take a look at, okay, a conservative parent. What does the conservative parent bring to the fore? Most conservative parents are probably religious, mm -hmm. which is so important to the stabilization of the identity of a person. If they have a genuine sense of eternal, of, of uh, hope for an eternal future, if they have a genuine sense of having an ultimate mooring and identity and meaning in life that's going somewhere and will be actually vouchsafed into um, a, an eternal future, the stabilization of that teen is much, much stronger than the teen that has no religion and, and feels you know, completely unmoored, has no hope mm -hmm. for the future whatsoever, and is just kind of freed from any kind of moral constraint to do whatever they want, but that doesn't make them feel any better. Freedom from moral constraints actually causes depression. 
This is what my you know, moral wisdom book is all about. The moment you start freeing yourself from moral constraint, it's like we're built into it. We need to respond to our conscience. We need principles. We want to be good. We want to have a sense of abiding nobility and good in ourselves rather than one of guilt and shame and violating of mm -hmm. people's rights and our own uh, you know, a sense of inauthenticity. If, we, if that's what we're reduced to, these teens are going to be uh, in, in a load of trouble. Well, you look at a conservative parent, going to have religion, going to have morals. These are really two huge primary stabilization factors. The other thing, of course, is what are, um, you know, a parent, uh, you know, what are parents who are um, religious and, and morally oriented who have a sense of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ expected for the family? Yes, conservative uh, parents absolutely have a sense of family, a prioritization of family. So the job, the career is not going to trump family. If push comes to shove, the family will come first. And that of is a really important thing. Does a child feel that? Absolutely the child feels that. The minute the child feels that the family is a priority, that he or she is a, pr a priority uh, within that family, those two things are, again, huge stabilizing influences for the identity of the child, the purpose in life of the child, and, of course, the future mm -hmm. efficacy of that child. So, uh, essentially, you've got four factors right there off the top. Number one, you've got religion. Number two, you've got commitment to morality. Number three, you've got a commitment to the family as paramount. And then number four, you've got a commitment to the child within the family. Mm -hmm. And that's very good. Now, what do parents like that do? They teach you a respect for the law. They teach you a respect for authority. You might think, oh, kids who grow up with, uh, you know, believing that they're absolutely free and that there's no authority All that's right, worth right. talking about that has any value whatsoever. Oh, that's good for our kids. That's the new America. It's not good for our kids. Kids who have no sense that authority has value are totally unmoored, unstable kids. They have no idea where to go. They don't have no idea how to anchor themselves. They have no idea how to, to fit themselves into a future. And of course, again, it's totally destabilizing. So all of these values that you very typically find in what might be called a conservative family, mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about political conservative. Right. I'm talking about a culturally conservative family, right? So political, you know, denomination could be whatever, you know, party you belong to. But the cultural conservatives is important because, of course, you get all five of those factors right down the, the, uh, the pike and every single one of them, we know that stabilizes the child. We know when a child not only has a stable identity, but has a sense of real purpose in life, a sense of absolute or grounded or ultimate identity, ultimate meaning in life, ultimate and eternal fulfillment. Mm -hmm. We know in, in a loving environment, in an environment where they're prioritized, where the child sees that they matter and that their future efficacy matters to the parents, I'm telling you, mm -hmm. that child's going to turn out very, very well, unless he some terrible tragedy befalls him or her. So the main thing right. to remember is, yeah, I mean, all the p points are in place. And if you start knocking those things off one at a time and then hit the real killer of the uh, 
of the child's identity, which is divorce, mm -hmm. especially divorce before uh, uh, the, the children are um, 18 years old, before they uh, leave the, right. the household and go to college or whatever, employment. Right. I'm telling you, those things are just totally destabilizing. And, and just so people know, this was done by Gallup, so this is not, you know, some yeah. hole that was, you know, skewed in a particular hole. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, yeah. and to follow up on the conservative, it said the idea that in dealing with them, they are the most likely to effectively discipline their children, okay, while also displaying yep. affection and responding to their needs. This was interesting. Liberal parents score the lowest, even worse than very liberal parents because they are least likely to successfully discipline their children. I guess at least if you're extremely liberal, you have mm -hmm. some very strong views on something that you're probably conveying to your mm -hmm. children yeah. rather than just kind of saying, well, a right. laissez-faire attitude. Yeah, exactly. And again, that discipline is connected with the authority. It's connected with the morality, mm -hmm. which in turn uh, you know, is connected with not only the parental authority, but the authority of civil government and the authority of God, and of course their ultimate identity, their eternal identity, which is wrapped up in it. Right. Another story kind of relates to the family and then impacts the church, the gift of a father, mm -hmm. how love leads to vocations, and, and this is a Catholic World Report story. Uh, we find the crisis huh. of fatherhood at the base of a vocational crisis, both for religious vocations and marriage, um, and it notes that it bears repeating, we've said this before, that, that fathers are by far the number one influence on their children's faith. And a, another recent uh, study uh, by the nonprofit community will confirm that fact. They go on to say, we find the crisis mm -hmm. of fatherhood at the base of a vocational crisis, both for religious and vocations. Goes on to say, self-sufficiency self plagues the fatherless creating an illusion of autonomy that masks deeper needs of communion and independence. Goes on to say, fatherlessness essentially constitutes societal suicide, stemming from an identity crisis and lack of purpose. The love of a father grounds us in reality, helping us to know our lives are good and we belong within a community greater than ourselves. Interesting connection. Yep, uh, all the things I just said previously, mm -hmm. uh, the main thing to note is that the father is responsible for strengthening uh, four out of those five factors. So the father is really uh, the strengthening of the religious identity and belief in God uh, and, and uh, religious authority. The father is also um, primarily responsible for the moral identity and the sense of, you know, um, uh, you know, principles within having a moral compass, et cetera, et cetera. It's not to say that the mother uh, doesn't do those things, but this is the stabilization of the identity and their, their ability to fit in uh, to the family. And of course, the father is generally responsible for the discipline uh, within the family, uh, which of course is that directive influence. Uh, you know, the mother, of course, supplying uh, oftentimes uh, the affection and the love and the comfort. Um, the father, uh, you know, obviously uh, does supply some of those things. The mother obviously does mm -hmm. supply uh, some of the discipline, no question about it. But when you put it all together, the father is responsible for so many of those civilizing uh, um, in influences. And of course, the father is primarily responsible for um, especially the son's uh, response to civil authority and, um, and uh, you know, their respect for the law. Now, you put all those things together and you go, what does that have to do with a religious vocation? Everything. 
of course, religion has to do with religious voc with a religious vocation. Morality has to do, and an internal moral compass has to do with religious vocations. Having a respect for authority and uh, specifically religious and civil authority has to do with a, a, a religious vocation, etc. And so you can pretty much see what you just say. Well, does that happen with um, girls as well as boys? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. I mean, girls pick up the same cues. They pick it up in a different way uh, you know, because girls are, are a more unmediated relationship uh, with their parents, whereas boys are me more mediated relationship with their parents. But nevertheless, the cues go out. And you can see that the strong father, the strong religious and moral identity father, a father who is affectionate yet firm and disciplined, uh, that kind of a, a father, you can see that the vocations, religious vocations, really burgeon in, uh, for, for women um, mm -hmm. uh, in a, in a um, family like that. Oh, that's great. You know, also uh, with... Uh what's going on in the world out there today. Let's change to, unfortunately, a, a, a less, uh, you know, relatable topic in the sense of the family, though it's good to understand what these issues are. Here's a story, because uh, uh -huh. abortion, which has been used by a certain party, certainly over the last election, and they plan on using it as a, as a major uh, part of their uh, campaign, uh, is abortion. Yeah. And here's a story out of Town Hall. Uh, and it's uh, Cosmopolitan magazine promotes satanic ritual abortion provided by the satanic temple. Uh, according to the magazine, uh, you know, as bad as it gets here, uh, sat uh, they view satanic temple views abortion as a religious ritual, one they argue deserves legal protection and in restrictive states especially. Cosmopolitan describes the satanic ritual guided by upside-down crosses as follows. And this is, this is kind of uh, what they tell people to do. First, you find a quiet space. Bring a mirror with you. Just taking medication, gaze at your reflection and focus on your personhood. Goes on to say, take the medication and immediately afterward recite beliefs should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Later, once your body expels the aborted tissue, okay, Return to your reflection. Focus again on your personhood and your power in making this decision. Complete the ritual by reciting a personal affirmation, by my body, my blood, my will, it is done. I got to tell you, right. that just validates my position and the religious position much more than it supports the satanic one or the pro-abortion right. position. I hope everybody sees this article right. because if they do, it should scare the heck out of them. And the reason I'm saying this uh, is because obviously, so obviously, uh, to associate abortion with Satanism mm -hmm. um, is, uh, by the way, uh, at the Napa Institute, uh, you might remember two years ago when they tried to, to you know, right. um, uh, you know, take, uh, you know, overshout, you know, Bill Barr when he was uh, speaking at the final speech. Guess who was together? The abortionists and the Satanists. So there was the Satan be praised signs alongside the abortion uh, signs. It was really amazing to see it out of the closet. But I mean, here, the association between Satanism and abortion, I'm glad that uh, this uh, magazine is, is making it known that this really is the agenda of right. Satan. It is killing innocent people is satanic. Killing innocent people 
so that you can have your over against me, nothing will mm -hmm. happen, autonomous identity, over against society, over against my child, over against God. I proclaim myself to be me. I mean, what is more satanic than that narcissistic quote unquote prayer at mm -hmm. the end. I mean, I, I'm so glad it's out in the open. Right. Narcissism, abortion, Satanism, it's all one big thing. Yeah, of course it's a jaw dropper uh, to see, you know, that you're calling upon Satan to help you out. And then, then to use science. That's the ultimate thing. See what I mean about, uh, we're not going to uh, have any uh, thing spoil the scientific view of things. The scientific view of things, I might just point out right now, is that that is a human life at the very, very first cell, the human zygote, a single-celled zygote, this, you know, um, you know, a totipotent cell that is there is a unique cell. That single cell will be the origin place of every single other cell in your body for the rest of your life. It's all there, right there, substantially complete. And that genome that's in that one cell, that genome is the genome that will direct all of the cell divisions and direct all of uh, the characteristics that you're going to be developing mm -hmm. throughout the rest of your life. Now, well, not all of them, but a good number mm -hmm. of them. There's epigenetic factors as well and so forth. But the main thing that, that matters is a lot of them, a huge number of them. And the point that's uh, clear here is that that is a substantially complete human being. That's what science is saying. And by the way, in those two major polls I've talked about before, uh, the, the major international poll, where 96% of professional biologists said that the origin, the point at which a new, original, mm -hmm. unique human being comes into being is the, to the toady cell, right. the single-celled zygote. The moment the two gametes unite, there it is. You've got, um, in that uh, right. um, uh, uh, zygote, you have um, a human being. And by the way, in the United States poll, 68% of the same, of, of professional biologists who were given four right. options of what to choose, 68% chose the single-celled zygote, right. the moment of fertilization slash conception. Right. So there it is. I, I just leave you with this thought. That's what professional biologists think. So yes, as we said last week, don't let the facts get in the way. Right, right. I mean, yes, yeah, the whole idea of appealing to science to support the fact that this is not a human being. Oh, but science is saying it is a human being. So if you're going to appeal to science and be true to what right. science is saying, be true right. to the genomic structure that is complete at this level, be true to the totipotent cell that is going to be the origin of all the other cells in the body, the substantially whole human being. If you want to appeal to science, it's telling you that is a right. unique human being that has just right. come uh, into um, being. Uh, and that's, that really is right. what you're killing. What really struck me was the idea that you need to have a mirror so you could look at yourself the whole time. I mean, if that doesn't yeah. contextualize the whole idea of what's going on here, I don't know what it is. The narcissism. Yeah, absolutely, it's as you said. narcissism. Absolutely. Uh, one last story before to get some questions or, or even to the break. Um, you know, because you're always interested in dealing with atheism and, and reaching out to young people yeah. today. I thought there was an interesting story that uh, Ross Dothout had in the New York Times 
Ayan Hersey Ali, oh. who was, I believe, married to Niall Ferguson, who's at, at Stanford, uh, is an ex-Muslim critic of Islamic fundamentalism. She's been out against it for a long time, and a champion of Enlightenment liberalism has announced that she now calls herself a Christian. Uh, a conversion she wow. attributes to twofold realization. First, that atheistic materialism is too weak to base upon which to ground Western liberalism. In a world where it's increasingly beset and the biblical tradition from which the liberal West emerged offers a sure foundation for her value. Second, that despite the sense of liberation from punitive religion that atheism once offered her, in the longer run she found that life without any spiritual solace is unendurable. And she goes on to say here, and to set out to practice Christianity because you love the civilization that sprang from it and feel some kind of spiritual response to the teaching seems much more reasonable than hobbling forever in agnosticism while you wait to achieve perfect theological certainty about the divinity of Christ. So she's on her way, but she's saying, forget about agnosticism. Get involved, jump in, yeah. become a Christian, and work your way towards that, and, and, and the truth will come to you. And she's yeah, a no, major atheist voice uh, out there, too. Major voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just absolutely amazing. It's just like uh, Dawkins, uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, the other day, you know, when he was debating with Archbishop Williams, the Anglican prelate uh, there, um, you know, in that debate, uh, mo moderated by uh, Sir Anthony Kenny, mm -hmm. and uh, essentially, uh, uh, during the debate, Archbishop Williams kind of had him backed against the wall, and, and so uh, Dawkins said, well, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm, I'm an agnostic. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, Sir, Sir Anthony Kenny said, what? You know, you're the founder of the new atheism and blah, 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 blah. And, and you're declaring yourself to be an agnostic? <clears throat> he goes, yeah, you know, my curiosity has <clears throat> trumped my skepticism. Anyway, the, the thought is that this is happening all over the place. But uh, I think it's really wonderful, obviously, that she is converted. I think her logic is exactly when she was talking about that solace. That's what I was talking about. When you have God as your, that's the center point of your identity, and you know, you have that sense of being absolutely grounded, that sense of eternal future, that sense of eternal hope, uh, you know, that is an eternal and, and ultimate kind of fulfillment. When you have that as your mm -hmm. ground, you are functionally uh, and ontologically a different person. You are elevated. You're transformed. Right. And that's what she found. And, of course, to be an agnostic, as she so beautifully articulated it, to be an agnostic is to go nowhere. Right, of absolutely. course, this has been the old cultural thing. To do nothing is to do something. something right. But really, I mean, she's discovered right. to do nothing is to do nothing. Right. Well, there's something and she said, I've got to go one way right. or another. Well, something we have to do is take a break, as you know. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Father, and we'll get some questions uh, out to our audience. So make sure you stay with us. There's, we're just breaking the surface, as they say. Stay with us. Spitzer's Universe. Today we are continuing with Father Spitzer's book on the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. But before we do that, we of course have some questions to get to. Uh, and first coming up from, for Father is, uh, Dear Father Spitzer, my husband and I just finished 
listening to a talk you gave on near-death experiences. After listening to you, mm -hmm. we are questioning where purgatory fits in. Are those who experience near-death not seeing purgatory because they have not fully crossed over? Do we only experience purgatory when our time on earth has fully expired? This is Chad and Angel, and I hope Angel is his wife's name, I assume so. so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Chad and Angel, um, here's the quick answer to your question. The first thing uh, to note is that um, uh, among adults, now this is not true for children, but among adults, only 18% of adults who undergo clinical death, right, flat EEG, mm -hmm. fixed and dilated pupils, only 18% have a near-death experience. So you say, well, what about the other 82%? I, you know, you, um, there are probably a lot of people going to purgatory in that 82%, and the reason that I think so mm -hmm. uh, is that um, their, their lives are not complete. Their judgment, uh, you know, the, the fact that there's going to be a judgment, right, uh, the, the, the judgment of their lives is not yet done. So those people um, uh, basically, um, you know, don't seem to have a near-death experience that's either pleasant mm. or unpleasant. So that's the first thing. Now, uh, you know, of the 18% that have a near-death experience, 85% do have a pleasant experience, mm -hmm. but 15% have a very dark mm -hmm. and unpleasant experience. But uh, why the purgatory thing? I just think there's more to be lived in that life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's just kind of a, an abeyance, a suspension. Uh, they don't have, um, you know, a sense of anything else yet. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's more to be lived and more to be done. So um, if they did have that, wow. they would, there would be uh, some form of judgment, and then I, I believe there would be some form wow. of purification, because that's what purgatory is, right? There would be a, right. a, a, a time that, that there would be purification. So that's my um, what uh, about, quick answer to your is question. It, is it possible just that some percentage of people or a high percentage of those people just don't remember that they might have had that an experience but don't recall it? Yeah, well, that's actually what uh, uh, there's there's two um, two major studies that kind of disagree, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on, on you know the number of people that remember things. Uh, so, for example, in Pim von Lommel's uh, you know uh, uh, study, which was a really excellent study published in the Lancet, 18% uh, of pe people experienced that. Uh, but in Samuel Parnia's study, uh, basically there were he found that. 10% uh, had the full-on near-death experience, um, and then uh, there was a much larger percentage of people who sort of had a, a quasi-dark, empty kind of a, a some you know experience uh, that was a little bit ambivalent. So that suggests strongly mm -hmm. that there are many people who just simply don't remember having had an experience, and obviously the kind of experience that would be suppressed, that is to say not remembered, mm -hmm. are those that are unpleasant. So if there was something unpleasant uh, that happened, there's a, a high likelihood that that would be more um, uh, suppressed, that would be mm -hmm. uh, not remembered uh, to see. a much greater degree. Okay, very good. Next up, yeah. uh, dear Father Spitzer, you've said more than once, and I've also heard this from a friend of mine, that when a blind person has a near-death experience, he or she sees everything perfectly. To your knowledge, how do many of them feel when they regain consciousness and they're now blind again? Are they disappointed 
or are even some angry. I'm totally blind without even light perception due to retinopathy of prematurity, Gene. Yeah. Yeah, Gene, here's the thing is, um, uh, first of all, it's 80% of people um, who are, you know, blind or blind from birth. 80% um, of them actually see during uh, their near-death experiences, and they do r report things very, very accurately indeed. And those reports have been verified by uh, researchers, independent researchers after the fact. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, you know, you're, you're cor quite correct. So I'd say a large majority of blind people see for the first time when they're clinically dead. Now, the, the second thing is, what do they feel like when they get back? Um, the vast majority um, of blind people people when they get back uh, basically feel great that they have seen things for the first time. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they feel great is because, number one, they know they will have vision in their future. Mm -hmm. So in other words, <clears throat> they've gotten the indication that there's going to be life after, um, you know, the physical body dies. <clears throat> they already know that. And they already know, and they've had a very good solid indication that that life after their physical body dies mm -hmm. is going to be visual. And not only is it going to be visual, they don't even know this, but our vision, of course, is always directed to where our eyes are directed. Mm -hmm. But um, the vision of a person in a near-death experience oftentimes is 360 degrees oh. all the way around. So you're not seeing through an organ like eyes. Uh, your, your, their, your vision is somehow... Um, in, in, you know, m carried out, actualized through some spiritual mediation of mm -hmm. some kind. And so uh, uh, you seem to see on a 360-degree panorama. So, but whatever the case may be, the, the point is, is no, they don't get depressed afterwards. They know, you know, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm, my, my uh, consciousness is going to survive my bodily death. And when it does, I'm going to be able to see. And that's a good thing. Now, some wow. people can just say, well, maybe that was just this one time when I had an out body experience but clearly they are in their what they call soul body right and they clearly are seeing and mm -hmm. thinking and remembering without their physical brain without their physical eyes etc and so there's really a very good credible possibility that when you die die absolutely mm -hmm. not just clinical death but when you're actually you know exit to the next world Right, you are going to not only exit with your soul body, but with one um, a soul body that sees perfectly, uh, even when you're blind, and that's a cause for most of them for hope, uh, not for any kind of depression. Of course, they would like to continue seeing, but they don't go rats. I wish I were dead, because then I could see. They basically know I've got a future where I'm going to be seeing just like everybody else. Okay, one last question before we get to uh, to the book. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, recently I was discussing the soul with my daughter. She thinks the soul exists before conception and is put into a person when they're conceived. I said I didn't think that pre-existence of the soul is the Christian view, but that it is created when the person is conceived. What is the church's teaching about this, Barbara? Uh, Barbara, you're absolutely correct. There is no um, uh, pre-existence of the soul. Um, you know, there are some people who claim that they really think that there's a pre-existence of the soul because they think they remember mm -hmm. things from a past life. Now, there are a ton of reasons 
why you could think you remember things from a past life. Uh, the, the primary one is not that you had a pre-existent soul. And the church does not believe you have a pre-existent soul either. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, they believe that the moment you are conceived, as you correctly stated, Barbara, that's when you get your soul. Now, the main thing is, well, how could a person get the, this sense that they have a pre-existent life? You have what's called a very active, creative, unconscious mind. And in that very active, creative, unconscious mind, you might think to yourself, you know, go back to when you're dreaming uh, and when you really had a very, very vivid dream. Mm -hmm. And have you ever noticed that in that very, very vivid dream, you like have an, I mean, you have your own identity there, but you're like in a different world. Mm -hmm. And in that different world, uh, the circumstances are very different from the world that you live in. Mm -hmm. Now, just imagine that you had a protracted series of dreams along those lines again and again and again and again right you you have this dream to the point where you almost begin to feel like wow you know um, there's this other identity in me hmm. well it's actually a, an identity that comes from your creative unconscious also as Christians we believe um, uh, you know too that there are spirits and spirits can sometimes try to affect or affect the imagination. Mm -hmm. Even a, a good spirit or a diabolical spirit could also affect dreams, could affect your unconscious mind, could affect mm -hmm. your imagination. Can't affect your freedom, can't affect your rational faculties, but could affect your imagination or your unconscious. Now, of course, if that's the case too, maybe you know there can be some sort of a, a way in which you have a premonition. I mean, you, you probably thought to yourself sometimes uh, when you were by yourself and let's suppose you're not in a neurotic state or something or um, uh, even a psychotic one right and you thought to yourself you know I'm there's someone in the room with me you know and um, I don't know who it is but I mean I get the distinct feeling that a, another identity mm -hmm. another personality is looking at me uh, right this very moment and, and of course yeah so can you you know do spirits communicate with us uh, yeah they can they can make their presence known. They can't affect your freedom. They can't uh -huh. manipulate you or anything like that, but they can definitely make uh, their presence known. You could get maybe some sense of identity from that too. So, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why you would think that, but, uh, you know, to, to, you know um, the idea that you have to have a pre-existent soul in order to have a well, sense right. <clears throat> that you, you ever, have a, an, you a, an alternative identity. All these people, you do that every night in your dreams. Everybody who has a past oh, life, they're, they're always Napoleon or a king or somebody. Nobody, nobody's a scullery maid or, a, or an indigent on the street. You know, it's just amazing how, you know, uh, how many different Napoleons could there have been. You know, I guess we're all sharing his particular life. Or it's always kind of interesting how those That's right. stories come back. These exciting lives people and, and, have. And, and, uh, that's right, and the right. exciting life that people has, uh, you know, the you know ha happens to be the one where you watched a couple of movies on mm, or something. Could know? be right, you know, right, exactly. That. <laughs> Too many romance novels. Okay, uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, there turning you go. to uh, page sixty-five, True and False Promises of Happiness and Freedom from your wonderful book, the instrument, yeah. uh, instrumentality of eros in contemporary culture. So the question is, how did our culture lose the bond between sexuality, commitment, and generative familial love? How did that happen? Yeah, 
Uh, well, it happened uh, sort of over the course of time. But World War II is a, is a big transition period where you have a kind of a break with, uh, you know, that family identity being quite strong and moving into what we might call, uh, you know, a more... Um, uh, you know, civil identity, uh, an identity that's more uh, uh, more than cosmopolitan. It's mm -hmm. kind of a, uh, you know, a broader cultural identity uh, beyond the strict family neighborhood identity. So um, once you um, uh, make that transition, there's a couple of things that happen, but then um, sexuality becomes progressively more uh, instrumentalized. And so you begin to see a series of studies uh, that were done um, you know, that, that basically, you know, paved the way uh, to look at the sexual act independent of emotional intimacy, mm. looking at the sexual act independent of any kind of commitment that would lead up to emotional intimacy. So constantly, um, these studies, what they were doing was they were basically trying to separate the sexual act from what was going on on the inside the emotional intimacy that, that needs to accompany that act in mm -hmm. order for the act not to become just fully aggressive and an end in itself. But it's not just the emotional intimacy, there's also the care that's linked to that emotional intimacy. That's a different dimension. And then, of course, there's um, uh, also what we call, uh, you know, the parental instincts that are linked to it as well and a variety of other things. Well, if you divorce the sexual act, from generativity is what we call that parental instinct. You divorce it from, you know, the uh, um, uh, actual, um, uh, you know, emotional intimacy between the, the, the partners and the commitment that is so required mm -hmm. uh, of the partners. And you divorce it from genuine care that comes from commitment and emotional intimacy. <clears throat> what you have is a very aggressive act, mm -hmm. which is why uh, when these studies were completed, right, uh, essentially America started transitioning its view to the uh, instrumentalization of se sexuality. And just as if the devil had plotted it himself, artificial birth control right. comes zooming in. Now, of course, they always had condoms and things like that, but they did not have, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of um, uh, birth control um, uh, where, you know, a, a woman's uh, cycles could be uh, regulated at, and then, of course, you could actually, um, you know, just make the woman infertile by chemical mm -hmm. means or hormonal means. And the main thing, uh, you know, once that happened, um, then all um, uh, of the holds were off. There was nothing that was holding sexuality back to being connected with commitment, connected with emotional intimacy, connected with the care that comes from emotional in intimacy, mm -hmm. and connected uh, with that you know, parental uh, desire, um, that desire to, to, to propagate with a particular person because you love them. So the, the idea is once all that, that separation happens, watch what happens to the r rate of rapes, right? So sexual violence, quint, uh, uh, rape in particular, um, um, uh, in, uh, quintuples increases by five times 
from uh, the mid-1960s until um, uh, the current day. That's a five times increase in rate. That's not good. S uh, other forms of sexual violence and sexual aggression uh, increased 3.2 times uh, over that period. And you just go right through all the statistics. It's, it's just a disaster area. When sexuality is, uh, you know, um, disconnected from commitment and emotional intimacy, it becomes very aggressive. It, the sex becomes an end in itself. The partner becomes right. secondary to the actual sexual gratification and of course once that happens and the pleasure um, um, pathways are being completely reformed in the brain to the point where you get an addiction to the pleasure but no concern whatsoever for the person um, you know and which is why pornography has just become such a huge addiction within the United States so quickly and not just in the United States in the world mm -hmm. so quickly uh, you can see pretty clearly um, that um, uh, that uh, this has been one of the worst things that's uh, ever happened but then one last factor was added to this wonderful formula mm -hmm. and that's what's called social norming mm -hmm. and what social norming did uh, now that you have right uh, a disconnect between sexual sexuality the person and commitment and family uh, so the disconnect is in place then the final thing is is people start saying well I should be able to have as much sex as I want whenever I want because you know I don't have to worry about intimacy with the partner commitment to the partner treating the partner like a human subject instead of a thing or an object and so forth and so on I don't have to worry about that anymore uh, you know I can have sex uh, guilt-free as it were without any concern for the personhood of the person with whom I'm having sex so obviously promiscuity is gonna go up like skyrocketingly and of course it did go up skyrocketingly but what happened in the meantime is it just kept you know this pushing upwards 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 you know and, and of course you can see uh, uh, why that is see what people do is if they don't like have like the Catholic Church's norms, or the Protestant Church's norms, or the, um, you know, just my family members' norms about sexuality, right? So all of these things are gone. Well, the only thing left is, well, I just want to be where everybody else is, right? I want to be in the quote-unquote mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get, you know, too low, too high. I want to be right in there. So, of course, now the person starts looking at, well, what's the median number of sexual partners? Uh, you know, and of course, as you uh, probably know, it was, of course, going up, up, up from 1962 today. So, of course, the person goes, hey, I'm kind of low. That's you know, right. I've only had seven sexual partners. I guess, you know, in order to, for me to catch up with the mainstream, I could have another three or four. Uh, and I'd still be comfortably in the mainstream. It wouldn't be too high. You know, I'd be right, right kind of right on in there. So you can see what happens, though. If everybody starts norming upwards, uh, let's say, to have a sexual um, um, uh, intercourse where you're uh, basically trying to reach the mainstream, well, it keeps pushing the norm up. Mm -hmm. And if it keeps pushing the norm up and everybody looks to the norm and says, well, I could go higher, you know, and still be in the mainstream, you can see pretty much how that's going to just keep pushing up, 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 and that's called social norming. Right. So that is the, you know, the kind of the final factor. And now, of course, uh, we've reached a, a whole other peak 
uh, of decadence mm -hmm. because it's not just now, you know, the promiscuity factors, uh, which are really <laughs> quite substantial. It's now moved into the whole cohabitation thing mm -hmm. where actually young people say, I don't see any difference between cohabitation and marriage. Basically, they're looking at their relationship. The instrumentalization of the relationship has finally occurred, right? Uh, uh, the, the, I'm with this other person because we can combine our finances. We can have the sex that we want. We can do all of these things. But, you know, if we need to get out of this, you know, we don't want to make a public commitment. Don't want to make a big deal out of it because if we do and then something happens in the future, then all the families are involved and, you know, the, uh, you know it's just going to be a, a, a big hassle. So the moment you, you start saying, well, I don't see the difference between cohabitation and marriage. Well, marriage is a public commitment. And that public commitment, we know that one factor of public commitment that's what sharpens our resolve no. to remain in relationship. Without that commitment, what takes place is a, gradually dis a, a, a gradual dissolution of the desire to keep focused and to maintain the commitment. Mm -hmm. That's why cohabiting couples, they don't stay together uh, over the long term. Cohabiting couples, the divorce rate of, quote unquote divorce, the uh, breakup rate of cohabiting co uh, uh, couples is, you know, m staggeringly higher mm -hmm. than the um, breakup rate uh, or divorce rate among married people because of the resolve to stay married. But that resolve to stay married is so important for the children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you say, oh, the children of a cohabitating couple, are, they're just fine. They're the same. They're better off. No, they're not. It's a very destabilized environment. And, of course, if the parents, um, you know, feel like they can break up if, if things get bad at any time, you don't think the children notice this? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, they notice it. And if they notice it, there's the destabilization of the child that, you know, begins to happen. The insecurity of the child begins to happen. I mean, all falls right into place. It's terrible for a long-term relationship. Cohabitation is terrible for long-term relationship. Cohabitation is very terrible for the child, for mm -hmm. any children that come out of it. And number three, of course, it's uh, while you're cohabitating, you're treating your person, the person in the cohabitating relationship as much uh, as a thing, as a beloved, right. as a subject. And of course, if you do that, eventually you're going to create stresses. And that's why cohabitating couples have much higher rates of substance abuse, have much higher rates of the dissolution of religion within the cohabitating couples, and much higher rates of stress than um, married couples. Now, we have, I mean, all those statistics are in my book. Just take a look. The right. Rosler and Rosenfeld studies are uh, tremendous on this. I, I think people just need to take a look at it. And by the way, you know, uh, uh, when, you, when you really look at it, the longer a couple cohabitates, if they should decide to get married rather than stay <clears throat> in a cohabitating relationship, those marriages because now the religious factors decrease, because of the gender asymmetry, right? <clears throat> the man was in the cohabitating relationship to delay right. the marriage. The woman was in there to try and promote the marriage. And of course, now if the marriage happens, oftentimes the man feels like, ah, I was forced into it by the family, or I was forced into it by, you know, I've been cohabitating with her for 15 years. I guess I probably should have, you know, done this, or something like that. But the stress levels right. actually, um, 
um, uh, you know, are brought right into the marriage with you. And so those marriages break up much right. faster um, than well, um, I, marriages right. that are just publicly right. I would, I would proclaimed you, at the beginning. Right. I would think you, you, you have the idea of people who are managing a relationship as a 50-50 proposition rather than everybody knows when you get married it's at least 100%, 100%. That's what the idea of a, of a, of a marriage and yeah. a commitment to somebody is, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, or the actual we identity becomes stronger right. than the I I identity. In other words, the you know I appropriate so much of the we. It, it, you know, it's almost right. it, it's not that I lose my I, but my I is now complemented to the we, right. where the we is actually you know almost right. in a dominant position not, right. uh, uh, to the I. Right. Yeah. It's not the less intentionally it's more. so it's, right. freely but, chosen. But, yeah. People are afraid of commitment. One commitment we have to make is that the show's just about over and we're running out of time, so we're going to have to <laughs> give us your blessing on the way out the door, Father, if you oh. would. <laughs> Very good. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may Almighty God send His Holy Spirit down upon you to inspire you and to know the, the recipe for sanity that is created in our faith. Not just individual sanity, sanity for our emotions, sanity for our religion, sanity for our culture, sanity for marriage, sanity for relationships, and sanity for the family so that you might go out and be a light within the darkness of our culture to turn around these suicide rates, to try and turn around uh, the, the decay in, in marital commitments so that we might become a stronger culture and a stronger church in order to serve the Lord in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Always a pleasure, Father. Be well. We shall see you next week, and we hope to see you all as well. Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. EWTNRC.com, of course, for all things Catholic and all things Mother Angelica. We'll continue with Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church next time we get together. And bookmark... Presented by Father Joseph Mary Wolf. I get to talk to Father Joseph about Mother Angelica's lessons on Genesis. He does a great job. He knew Mother, mother so, so well. And Friday, December 8th, is the Feast of Immaculate Conception. So be sure to stay with EW10 throughout the day as we bring you events from Rome and Masses from Lourdes, Washington, D.C. to celebrate Our Lady. Check out the schedule at EW10.com for times in your area. And don't forget, if you have any way to get to Mass, you're supposed to go check out Mass as well. And check us out next time as well, right here on Father Spitzer's Universe. Till then.